0: This episode of Mass Holes is brought to you by Friendly City Books, Columbus, Mississippi's independent bookstore. Learn more at FriendlyCityBooks.com. And welcome to Mass Holes, the Friendly City Books podcast where we talk all things Sarah J. Mass. I am your host, Caroline, and with me today is Aislin. Hello again. Hi, Caroline. So today we are talking about Crescent City 3 House of Flame and Shadow. This is what we have been working towards this entire time. It is finally here. We have the book, we have read the book, and we have feelings and we have thoughts lots of feelings i thought this book was fantastic
1: same i know that's kind of an unpopular opinion with people who really love akatar
0: yeah i think there's a lot of people who are upset that this isn't an akatar book and i think that because the last one ended with bryce in prithian in the night court i think people thought it was going to be much more akatar than it really was but we got like nearly 300 pages of adventure in the beginning that all stemmed from the Night Court and like Nesta and Asriel. So like, it's not like we didn't get anything.
1: Yeah. I mean, we got a lot of side characters.
0: We did. It definitely was, a, as you were saying, a very classic spinoff where you didn't get any main characters for the most part, but you did get a lot of side characters.
1: And like classic television spinoff where... The characters that you really want to cross over just had a too expensive price tag. Yeah, she could not afford to put Reese and Feyre <laughs> in Crescent City.
0: That being said, I think this is the most I've ever liked Nesta. I really enjoyed her in this book, and I thought that she was a great companion to Bryce. I thought they really saw each other and related to each other in a cool way that i don't think i ever saw nesta relate to with anybody in the inner circle maybe with her valkyries but that's about it
1: yeah i think that of all of the characters that are in this world that sarah j mass has created nesta and bryce are a lot alike Mm -hmm. they both have that kind of self-destruction vibe so I think I think they of all of the characters would have gotten along the best. So it makes sense as to why she put them together.
0: Yeah. I do think another variable to why people maybe had opinions that are different than mine about this book is that it is not super romancy. There's like little to no romance, I feel like. And it is not only extremely fantasy, but it is very very sci-fi. Yeah. And I know that when I was, you know, reading Crescent City 1, I was like, oh, this is very, like, mystery, noir. And then Crescent City 2, I was like, we're verging into the sci-fi territory here. And I think this book went full sci-fi. Obviously, it's set in a fantasy world, but that genre bridge has been gapped.
1: (laughs) The two genres have been bridged in this book.
0: Yes. And it is sci-fi and it is fantasy now. And I personally love that. But I also understand if, you know, not everybody is a sci-fi reader and maybe that might be a bridge too far for them. Yeah. But I loved that this book had a ton of lore in it. We got so much backstory on the world, the history of things. We get Jessica's backstory finally, which was fantastic. We get sword lore. We get the origins of the Starborn Fae. There is so much rich story building.
1: I feel like we get even more of the backstory of Prithian. Mm -hmm. And then we get a lot of the backstory for the Crescent City world. And I love that. Mm -hmm. That's like one of my favorite things about any book series is getting kind of the lore behind it. Mm -hmm. But now we need like a codex kind of thing.
0: (laughs) Yeah, I mean, this is 100% the Avengers of Sarah J. Mass. This is the multiverse. So not only are we learning more about Crescent City and Midgard, but like we also get so much more about the Throne of Glass world in this. And obviously, like I have not read Throne of Glass. So all I know about Throne of Glass really comes from this book. But there are many conversations in here about how there's the fae that we know from the world of Prithian, mm-hmm. or the fae homeland, as they call it. And then there's also the shifter fae, and that the shifters are fae who came from a different world. And from my understanding, that is Throne of Glass. That is the Throne of Glass world. And there
1: there is a great connection that those of us that have read Throne of Glass get later in the book. <laughs> there was internal screaming. <laughs>
0: But yeah, so, I mean, I love this book. I thought it was fantastic. I mean, my favorite book so far has been Crescent City One, but I think that this book really fixed a lot of the issues that I experienced with Crescent City One, mostly the pacing. I mean, this book does not stop instead of going different narratives every chapter it's like multiple narratives within every chapter and so you get a little taste of Bryce you get a little taste of Rune or Lydia or whoever it might be and then you know a character that you maybe don't care so much about for me Ethan I only have to deal with like a page of him and then I'm like oh a reward on to the next person you know and it's so much easier to get through there's no lag there's no grinding halt And on top of all that, it really is a book in three acts and Mm -hmm. each of these acts has huge crescendos in action and discovery and these like massive climaxes as well. So there's always something going on and yes, it kind of ebbs and flows, but it is so much better planned, I think, and the execution is so strong and I feel like we are seeing sarah j mass like adapting in real time to make these books more digestible and more exciting for the reader
1: well and i also think she overcomes what i think of as her fatal flaw as a writer and that is that in all of her other books the action builds and builds and builds and builds and then the last 100 pages is absolute chaos Mm -hmm. and This one has lots of those moments. (laughs) Yes, it does. It's not just the last hundred pages that leave us just in awe of (laughs) what in the world is happening.
0: Yeah. I mean, I read this book over the course of two days. Obviously, we had our midnight premiere party at the bookstore. I grabbed my copy there. And when I got home that night at like one o'clock in the morning, I was like, hmm, maybe I'll start a couple chapters and just give myself a head start. I read until the sun came up. I was at like page 283 before I fell asleep. (laughs) And it was so good that I just kept on reading. And then the minute I woke up the next morning, I picked up my book and I read 200 more pages before I even got out of bed. Like I just burned through it. And it was so fun, such a great experience. And yes, the last hundred pages still are insane but it's not the only insane part about this book. Yeah, Actually, last night I went and read back that last 100 pages so that I know exactly what happened because when I was trying to piece my thoughts together for this, I was like, wait, how did we even get here? Because it was like a (laughs) fever dream the first time I read it and it was so much fun, but yet I'm like, no, I definitely need to read this book again and I need to maybe take notes this time.
1: I will definitely be rereading it before the next one comes out.
0: For sure. Also, the ending, I was shocked by how neatly everything is tied up in the end. I don't know what I expected, but I definitely didn't expect such a pretty bow on everything at the end. I
1: mean, there's still more to be done. Mm-hmm. And they, they kind of leave that out there, that there's still... Like, they've created a power vacuum, and Bryce doesn't want to fill it. And that's going to mean that there is... A lot of conflict mm-hmm. um, that's set up for her next book. But I thought it was similar to the bow at the end of Ackle War. Yeah. There's still stuff that can happen after Ackle War, and it does. But like, if you just want to stop reading at the trilogy, you could stop reading.
0: Yeah. If you wanted. I mean, I am a little worried that <laughs> one of the only people with a big storyline left is Ethan. And I'm like, I don't need an Ethan book, but. I digress. <laughs> Basically, you know, at the end, obviously, spoiler alert, I guess. If you're if you're worried about spoilers, do not listen to this podcast. But, you know, the Asteria are dead and gone at the end. Bryce is kind of living happily ever after with Hunt. Rune and Lydia get there happily ever after. And yeah, it's like, um, how are we going to rule this city now? And Bryce is like, well, I don't really want to. And I'm just going to tell everybody that they don't have any class systems now. Bye. Which is not really how governance works. No. And
1: Lunathion is not the only place Mm -hmm. in this entire world. Like, it's just one city. But I think we're perfectly set up for the fourth house that we haven't had a book for. Because I expect the Ocean Queen to try to fill that power vacuum. Oh, yeah. And I think we're going to get some Therian story. Oh, for sure. And seeing him make all of his terrible decisions that somehow work out for him.
0: Yeah, he just, he really always comes out on top somehow. But yeah, we we still have Tharian, We still have Hypaxia, which I think is great. There's Sathia and the Viper Queen, all of these setups. But I also really think that it would be cool to see the greater world in Midgard, all these other cities, and maybe expand in that way. And, you know, maybe go to a new place, try a new thing or meet a new baddie, you know, that we really need to be worried. Or maybe we've already met the baddie and it's the Ocean Queen. It could be. I don't know.
1: So, like, part of the lore that I am fascinated by Mm -hmm. with the Ocean Queen is that the mares and the ocean creatures predate the Asteri's takeover of that world and like what in the world have they been doing for the last what
0: 50,000 years or something like that? Yeah I think that's the most interesting thing is that like they're not the veneer who came here they were already in this world and it seems like we're getting clues that there was some sort of maybe an ancient civilization of some form that was tied to them because there are like roads underneath the water at one point, I think Tharian says, and there's like word marks under the water and all these things. So like there is a ton of backstory there that we have the like preliminary setup for, but we mm-hmm. don't have the full understanding of yet. Yet. Also, I would like a formal apology from all Hell Doubters. Hell is Bay hell is unproblematic (laughs) i stand the princes of hell and you can get in line and make your apologies to me directly and i will relay them because how dare you doubt i mean hunt's creation was a little problematic okay they clearly enjoy you know making monsters and all that stuff like that but like apollyon and adis Our sweet baby angels, especially Adis, (laughs) who is crying about always following your love. And like, I told her to choose love. And there's tears down his face. Like, come on, man. Like, (laughs) (laughs) The princess of hell are cinnamon rolls. Certified. Trademark. (laughs) End of story. But anyways, let's just go ahead and dive right into the plot of this book. We will not hash out every plot detail. We'll be here for hours and hours and hours and hours
1: if you want every plot detail you should read the book
0: <laughs> <laughs> good idea but yeah so like i said this book is kind of broken up into three acts and so i think that's a good way to organize this the first of course being bryce in the night court we obviously end the second book with her in the night court and we open right back up to that as well we have bryce being held in a cell in the Hewn city and she is being interrogated by Reese, Amrin, and Azriel. They give her a magic bean so that she can communicate with them. Which the most ridiculous <laughs> plot device. <laughs> a bean. <laughs> a bean. <laughs> magic bean. <laughs> I can't. And also, I think okay. I think Sarah (laughs) thought this was stupid, too, because at the very end, when Bryce talks to her parents, they're like, oh, yeah, they were sick of trying to communicate with us. So they gave us one of those magic beans, too. (laughs) So like, I think she knew. (laughs) I really thought that Amron was going to be way more consequential in this because, I mean, obviously, since way back in Akawar, I've been like, Amron should have died. She got the ending that she deserved of this, like, big moment. She got her closure. Like, she didn't need to be brought back to life, right? And then when we started realizing all of this Crescent City crossover, I was like, okay, maybe there's, like, a good reason that we need Amarin as a connector to these worlds. But aside from her line about, like, oh, I recognize the language you're speaking and no one's spoken it in thousands of years, Amarin provides literally nothing to this. I mean there's no like she has this great secret that she's able to like tap into or lore that she's able to share. Mostly all we get from Amryn is, "Oh, I was going into the prison around that time that w- your guys are looking for the history, so I don't actually have any good information." But that is kind of interesting information. It is, and we will get to that because I have a theory about Amryn. <laughs> so, when Bryce eats this magic bean. Her tattoo lights up. And I'm not sure if this is the point that we discover it, but essentially it's discovered that her tattoo is written in the language of the Asteri. And so Mm -hmm. basically the inner circle realized just how formidable of a person they're dealing with here. But Bryce is giving them absolutely nothing as she does. She's not going to give you any information for free. So they leave her in the cell to kind of like marinate And she is able to actually escape through a trapdoor, guided by her light. She goes down there and she finds this tunnel system and her light is kind of pointing her in all these different directions. And Nesta and later it's revealed Asriel as well, find her down there. And they end up going on this kind of mini quest to see where the light is taking them and maybe find a way out of the tunnels. And... Along the way, they stumble onto a Midgardian worm, which I thought was a very fun callback to Akatar. Nesta uses the Dread Trove's mask to defeat this worm after an extended battle scene. And I thought that this was a fun like first introduction for Bryce into the Dread Trove, like what these pieces are, other than the horn that she's been able to use, and what can the mask do. Right. So the tunnels have all these like paintings and carvings throughout that seem to be kind of telling the story of something. You know, it feels very important. And Bryce occasionally will look up and be like, oh, I see this moment. I see these flying horses or whatever it might be. And so it's clearly, in my mind, a history of the Fae and the actual process of going to Midgard. But so they finally get to this door that has a eight pointed star on it that's warded and only Bryce can open it. So she does. And inside is essentially like this starborn secret cave, if you will. And there is basically a hologram of Princess Celine, who we know is the daughter of Thea. And here we get sci fi,
1: like <laughs> straight up sci fi.
0: We're getting Obi Wan, you are only hope. <laughs> like full yes. on. And this is when Bryce discovers the true origins of the starborn fae and this is our first massive drop of lore Mm -hmm. so we learn that the Asteri once ruled prithian at that time they were known as the Daglin, which we've heard about the Daglin briefly in akatar but they have been overthrown by the first and last high king of prithian fion now Thea is the wife of Fion, so she is the queen of prithian they have two daughters Celine and helena and thea the story goes as selene says wanted power and she killed her husband in order to seize his throne and she wanted her daughters to rule as well and as it says one world for each daughter so she enlists the help of her general Peleus and they cross into the world of Midgard and they wage war on those who are already living there. Only then did Thea and her daughters realize that Peleus was working with the Asteri to lure them to this new world. So Thea decides to fight against the Asteri in Midgard, but tries to send her daughters back to the Fae homeworld. She splits her starborn powers between the two of them and gives them each a piece of the dread trove, but only Selene makes it back to Prithian and Helena stays in Midgard. And we know that she is forced to marry Peleus and thus the origin of Bryce's lineage. Back in the Fae home world, Selene erases the history of her family, their land, and any memory of Midgard and the Asteri. She turns her family's home island into the prison where she's going to keep all of the Asteri's monsters that they have created. And Celine marries the son of the High Lord of the newly formed Night Court and has a son. And this is the origins of Reese's lineage.
1: So this backstory that we get means a lot. That means the Dusk Court theory is confirmed. Mm-hmm. The island that the prison is on was the historic home of the Starborn Fae. As I mentioned earlier, Tells us something that could be interesting about Amren, that she could be an Asteri creature of some sort.
0: Yeah. So I've seen a couple of people talk about this. One is that they're like, oh, Amren was just so powerful that Celine thought that she was one of the Asteri's made creatures. But... I- I think Amran, she drank blood. She's not necessarily a good entity. She was created with nefarious intent. So I think it is a very strong likelihood that Amran was made by the Asteri. Yeah. We also learn that the dread trove,
1: the mask, the crown, the horn, the harp are actually created by the Asteri.
0: Mm-hmm. And if I'm not wrong, this is also when we learn that the Asteri kind of corrupted the cauldron as well in yes. Prithian.
1: But that the cauldron preexisted. Like yeah. it, was, it was there before the Asteri. And that confirms the folklore around the cauldron of like from it poured all life because there was some questioning of that in Prithian if the cauldron really was what the lore said that it was.
0: Right. Because you've got all this lore that the cauldron is like this life giver and this positive thing. But then when we meet the cauldron, it's this like corrupted, nasty thing. And really when Nesta goes into the cauldron, she becomes Lady Death, which is, you know, obviously if the cauldron represents life and death, she should be life as well as death. And maybe through that Asteri corruption, that is where the cauldron became more dark sided, if you will. Yeah, But yeah, we learned that With the dread trove, we get an explainer for how the horn ends up in one place and the other three end up in another place. Basically, Thea gained control of all four pieces of the trove and she hid the mask and the crown, but then used the horn and harp to open the initial portal to Midgard. So that's why she took those two with her. And then when she sent her two daughters back, one got the harp, one got the horn. And then obviously when Selene made it back, the harp made it back. But when Helena did not make it back, that's why the horn stayed in Midgard. Right. Another big thing I noticed was that Asriel describes Selene as looking like Reese's sister. And to me, this supports my unhinged fan theory That Reese's lost sister is actually Rune's mom. It doesn't necessarily support it, but I think it's a fun callback that I think wouldn't be there without a reason. Yeah. The story goes that Tamlin and his brothers and father were, you know, responsible for the death of Reese's mother and sister. My theory is that Tamlin loved Reese's sister, didn't want her to die, and was able to get her out instead of being killed. This all happened in an Illyrian war camp. So, it's possible that either Ramiel is a portal that, as a starborn Fae, Reese's sister would have been able to use to get to Midgard, or perhaps Tamlin's magical star pond in the Spring Court could have played into this as well. I don't know, but I love this theory. I'm very attached to this theory. But the idea that Reese and Rune look exactly alike, the idea that Reese's sister looks exactly like Selene, to be like, a thousand years removed from each other, it would be strange if you all looked exactly alike without a good, good reason. I would agree with that. I like that theory. I think that's yeah. a great fan theory.
1: <laughs> I'm on board.
0: Another fun nod that I noticed was that Selene says that the Fae who went to Midgard were from her land, so the Dust Court, but also fire-haired Fae from farther south. And that is obviously the Autumn Court. And I think that's also where we get our Autumn King from and why he pulls that title is because his they come from the Autumn Lands. And I thought that that was really fun and a good confirmation because the whole time I was like, we have an Autumn King and an Autumn Court. They've got to be connected.
1: Yeah. And that was always one of my fan theories is mm-hmm. that they they were definitely related in some way. And we get that confirmation and that's very fun. So Bryce and Lucian are cousins. Aww. <laughs> but they didn't get to meet, which is a, a cry and shame.
0: Because Lucian was busy with his weird thruple off in the <laughs> netherworlds, wherever they are. Get it together, bro. Oh, Lucian. I can't. Most tragic character. <laughs> I just want Lucian to be happy.
1: So in my mind, Therian and Lucian are like the exact opposites <laughs> where like... <laughs> Nothing ever works out for Lucian, Uh and everything works out for Therian. So what would happen if they were on the same team? (laughs) I now need to see this. Sarah J. Mass. if you ever listen to this podcast, please make this happen.
0: Just a little novella. It'd be great. (laughs) I'm sure it exists on the internet.
1: And if not, one of us should write
0: it. Yeah. (laughs) Well... We should also talk about sword lore because we get a ton of
1: that. There is a ton of that. So when Bryce ends up in Prithian, Mm -hmm. the star sword reacts to Asriel's dagger truth teller. And it's like they're calling to each other. And you almost get Lord of the Rings One Ring vibes. Like if you have both of them, you have this immense weight on your shoulders because <laughs> they just want to be together. Uh-huh. <laughs> because they take the Star Sword away from Bryce when they put her in the, in the dungeon. And they also recognize the Star Sword is also known as Gwydion and Prithian, which is the sword that they were looking for during Silver Flames. Mm -hmm. So it's this legendary lost sword. And on Bryce's side in Midgard, there's a prophecy among the Valbaran Fae that says, when sword and dagger are reunited, so shall our people be. So we have these two prophecies these two legends from both of these worlds that have just collided in the star sword and truth teller the dagger mm-hmm. so during the whole adventure in the caves until they find selene Azrael's carrying both and we learn that they are asteri weapons that were created for essentially the asteri to use against each other mm-hmm. i don't know if we we know that for sure but like that that may be my theory and it makes sense right Like when you're that powerful of beings and you don't always get along you're gonna make weapons to use against each other
0: yeah you need contingency plans yeah and that the sword and dagger are supposed to be used in tandem with each other. The way that they're yes. calling to each other, it's because in order to be fully used properly, they have to be used as one.
1: Right. And what happens when you put them together is that they create a black hole. <laughs> <laughs> Sci-fi! <laughs> Which, I guess, is the only place that
0: Asteri can
1: be out of the way
0: yeah i mean the hysteria are huge big bads and one of the things that i always thought was so interesting was how omniscient they were but then this book they seem to really be lacking in omniscience maybe their overconfidence got in the way but i think in some ways when you create a big bad that is so huge you kind of have to do something like a black hole to get rid of them Because it's not enough to just stab them in the heart, you know?
1: But with the Asteri not being omniscient in this book, I think it's because most of their omniscience came from, like, the First Light network. Oh, yeah. And the network of people loyal to them that they had, especially the Archangels. Mm -hmm. But because of what Bryce did... The entire archangel system is breaking down.
0: Right. So they don't have nearly the intel that they used to. Right. Well, while Bryce, Nesta, and Azrael are in this cave talking to Celine's hologram, Bryce is also infused with Celine's starborn powers. And she basically absorbs them into herself. As we know, Bryce is kind of like a a power bank herself. So now she is dramatically more formidable. But Bryce is also very upset because she's essentially learning that Thea is not a good person to be looking up to or memorializing this way. And that Celine is not very good either. You know, for Bryce, the big issue is that they abandoned these innocent Fae in Midgard and Selene locked them out of this Fae homeworld forever when she came across the portal and closed it behind her. Yeah. So obviously Bryce has a really hard time with this because Bryce really cares a lot about the common good and the general people of Midgard. Yeah, and it's the whole religious system
1: of the mm-hmm. Valbaran Fae breaking down because they had deified Thea.
0: And when she learned from Adis the truth of, like, that Peleus is not actually good and that the true heroes of the story are the women and that the women are the heirs of this power, I think that it really painted it in a really positive light. Mm -hmm. And here she's learning that there's, like, a fully other side of this coin, which, Adis, your girl is problematic and you have problematic taste. What are you doing? So problematic. (laughs) But anyways... A wild twist that happens in this cave is that they discover an Asteri who is locked in a crystal coffin. <laughs> it's wild. Again, sci-fi. <laughs> sci-fi. So she's been there just this whole time. And Bryce is like, let's free her and talk to her. Which, what? Why? So they release her. They start talking to her. Obviously, that doesn't work. And there is this extended fight scene between this Asteri, Nesta, Asriel, and Bryce that culminates with Nesta killing her.
1: Yeah. Bryce is about to kill her and then it goes badly. And then Nesta comes in and chops off her head. <laughs> it's it's a great moment. Yeah. It's like only Nesta could just swoop in and kill an Asteri.
0: Yeah. And obviously this is also like a reoccurring thing between nesta and bryce that like they have each other's back they'll save each other's life and then bryce just dips on nesta repeatedly but then comes back to save (laughs) nesta's life and nesta's like you're a soft-hearted idiot (laughs) (laughs) so it's a fun moment to see them working together yeah
1: but then bryce betrays all of them steals truth teller and pops open a gate and comes back to midgard
0: yeah, and she's just like, later dudes. <laughs> and Azriel's like, not my sword. <laughs> <laughs> so that's the part that we get in the Night Court. Meanwhile, in Midgard, Therian and Ariadne are working in the fighting pits for the Viper Queen. And Ethan, Sigrid, and the Fabros and the Sprites, all... Are like, we need to rescue Reese and Hunt, but we need Therian to do it.
1: The weirdest B team.
0: <laughs> so they go to the Viper Queen to try to get them freed so that they can use Therian and Ariadne to help get their friends away from the Asteri. Ariadne does not get a lot of screen time in this book. She gets essentially like rented out by someone like the viper queen's like you're gonna go work for so-and-so now and we don't really get a lot of clarity on who that is and she disappears entirely from the book until the very last couple of pages where she appears to therian in an alleyway and is like are you still getting in trouble which the answer is always yes so I think there's a lot of Ariadne fans who are very disappointed by her lack of presence in this book, because I personally would have loved to see Ariadne just like laying waste on people.
1: Yeah. but Isn't she locked inside
0: her human form? I think so. And maybe that's something we'll get to explore in the next book, because obviously she is important. We just don't get her yet.
1: Yeah. But Ethan, soft hearted Ethan.
0: Idiot. Ethan.
1: <laughs> Idiot Ethan. <laughs> it's like, we can't go to battle with Bryce if we're not all together.
0: <laughs> we must rescue Therian. Therian got himself into that mess. Yes. And the brilliant chess player that Ethan is, he makes a deal oh with gosh. the Viper Queen that's like, oh, yeah, if I fight one fight for you and I win, we're all free. we free to go. Like, that's not going to backfire. So it does, obviously, spectacularly, because the Viper Queen chooses his opponent. And who is it but Sigrid? His would-be Alpha. The
1: Alpha he wants but doesn't need.
0: (laughs) Yes. Um, And he cannot let go of this. But so he has to fight Sigrid. And this battle is to the death. And he is like, no, I don't want to kill Sigrid. I can't do this. And they're fighting. And he accidentally kills her in this battle. <laughs> Bro. <laughs> oh, Ethan. Technically, they're free to go. And Ethan, Tharian, the Sprites, and the Fabros make a run for it to the Ocean Queen city ship. But not before the Sprites burn down part of the Viper Queen's meat market as retribution for what they've been through, and for Secret's death, also
1: seemed like a bad idea. Like, yeah, don't mess with
0: the Viper Queen. But they're sprites; they don't care. Sprites are spicy. I love them. But so, an important note: Ethan does not get on the Ocean Queen's city ship because Captain Savaho has got to go save Secret, and his plan is to bring her back to life. Which, good luck, man. He's going to go find a necromancer. Where are we going to find one of those? I wonder.
1: So, also, meanwhile, in the Asteri main city that I forget the name of,
0: the Eternal City.
1: The Eternal City.
0: I learned that last night.
1: (laughs) Uh, Rune Hunt and Baxian are locked in the Asteri dungeon. They're being tortured by Lydia and Pollux. It's horrible, it's brutal it's gruesome. There's no way out. There's some shadows moving. One hopes it's Cormac. No, Cormac is dead. Yeah,
0: I really, I really thought this was going to be Cormac here to save the day. But no. instead, there's Apollyon, which for as dark as this moment was in the prison, I actually thought that this little moment with the Princess of Hell was really funny and like a kind of comedic yes. levity because Apollyon shows up and says, where's Bryce? And Hunt's like, she's not with you. She was supposed to be going to hell to find Adis. And this is when they all kind of realize that like Bryce didn't go to hell. Yeah. Which, you know, is devastating for Hunt because he's in this really rough situation and doesn't know where Bryce is. But they're like looking at each other like, we've lost Bryce, (laughs) which... I at least thought was very funny. The mannerisms of it all was really well written as like a kind of a funny moment. But this is, in fact, where everyone is now on the same page that Bryce did not make it to hell. She is somewhere else.
1: But Lydia, though her cover is still intact, she keeps trying to figure a way out for the boys. Mm -hmm. But she knows that her cover won't be intact very long because the harpy who she killed at the end of book two isn't actually dead. They have been working to bring her back to life using Hunt's lightning. Mm -hmm. So she starts working on a plan for escape. She enlists the queen of the fire sprites, which is awesome.
0: Anytime a fire sprite shows up, I am over the moon. (laughs)
1: We do love the fire sprites. They're the best. (laughs) And so she's working to get them out. But then also the guys are working to get themselves out. And that ends up being like Baxian trying to chew off Rune's hand. Okay. What does end up happening.
0: This is so wild because Randy, when we were talking about theories for what was going to happen in this book, she was like, I think Rune's arms are going to get cut off. And I was like, What? Like, where has this theory come from that this was like, she's not wrong? No, she wasn't wrong. I was shook. I'm reading this and I was like, Randy was right this whole time. She was right. But it comes back. Yeah, it does. (laughs) But anyway, sorry. Sometimes these crazy fan theories are correct. Yeah. Vindication. I do want to know where that came from now.
1: Anyway, uh, so... (laughs) Lydia walks in and is like, oh, my God, where's your hand? <laughs> <laughs> Never in, like, mind. Cotton freeze frame. Like... <laughs> it's like, Never mind. Come on. Let's go. Break <laughs> some pr- all out while Rune is just like, ah, my hand.
0: <laughs> oh, my God. What a mess. But then there's a
1: car chase. They split up. Hunt and Baxian fly everybody to the Ocean Queen ship. But then Lydia is being hunted down and she turns into her deer form Mm -hmm. and she ends up on a cliff and she jumps off and is shot in the process. And like we find out she nearly dies. Yes. Like there is not much left of her.
0: Yeah, it's one of those like fade to black moments where you're like, is she dead? Yeah. I better read the next chapter to find mm-hmm. out. But yeah, it was a it was a real rough moment for Lydia. And I mean, it is her own lackeys from the Asteria who are hunting her down. They are, of yeah. course, very angry and betrayed by her. And it's Mordoc and these wolves. And they're very formidable. And the imagery of these wolves hunting down this deer is very, you know, significant, I think, to the story and like a really vivid depiction of this situation. Yeah. And so for her to take this giant leap of faith of just, I'd rather be dead than in these people's hands because she knows what they do. So, yeah, protect Lydia at all costs. Also, now back in Midgard is Bryce. She teleports herself right back into Crescent City, straight into the Autumn King's mansion. And I really enjoyed this little section of the book. It's her and her dad having this like very chess-like back and forth where they're just kind Mm -hmm. of like gaming with each other and trying to kind of outwit each other. And, you know, obviously she's kind of playing into her dad's expectations of her and he's talking down to her in the way that he does. And he really like he puts her under house arrest. He thinks that he has her trapped, but... In true Bryce fashion, this is her plan all along. And she is just milking him for information about the origins of the Fae, the weapons that she has, how to use all these things, and how to defeat the Asteri. And in the end, when she's done with him and has all the information she needs, she locks him in a closet and leaves. (laughs) Iconic behavior. Yes. And then she just teleports herself straight onto the Ocean Queen city ship and is reunited with everyone.
1: And Hunt Hunt nearly has a heart attack.
0: (laughs) (laughs) But it's just nice to finally have almost everybody back together into one place because all of these storylines are going on back and forth and back and forth. And it's like you get one page of one and one page of the other. And so it's just such a breakneck pace. And to finally have them together, it's almost like you can take a huge breath Mm -hmm. and be like, all right, we have recentered ourselves and now we can kind of start the next phase of this book. And
1: then we move to part two. <laughs> yes. So Bryce walks in to what is essentially a council meeting, announces herself as the starborn queen of all <laughs> the Valbar and Faye, which is a little premature. <laughs> and then we find out lots of different things. One that the Ocean Queen predates the Asteri, Mm-hmm. and she knows what's happening. She even knows what's happening with the second light. And what the Ocean Queen has chosen to do is to help the resistance, but never to jeopardize her
0: independence. Right. And she also takes some significant measures to protect her own people. Like her systems don't use first light to power themselves. Her city right. ships use an alternate power source. And... She is, of course, very disturbed by the idea that the Asteri have put a parasite into the water to diminish people's powers, because obviously the water is her domain. So how affected are her people by that? And that's a real tremendous question for her.
1: Because, I mean, we find out that this parasite forces you to make the drop. It forces Mm -hmm. you to give over your first light to the Asteri and her people do have to make the drop.
0: Yeah. And that's like the one vestige of control that the Asteri really have over her.
1: We also find out why Lydia has been working with the Resistance.
0: Oh my God. Big reveal. This is like the biggest reveal in the book, I think. And it is that Lydia has children. Yes. And it's twins,
1: Bran and Actian. And we find out later that Bran, and we find this out like at the end of the book, but I know we'll be talking about more stuff at the end of the book, (laughs) but we found out later that she named Bran Bran because he's named after Brannon, her ancestor. But this is where it ties into Throne of Glass. And this is where our Throne of Glass girlies get really excited because Brannon is also Aelin's ancestor.
0: And later on, when she finally is able to really assume her full powers, she makes a quip like, oh, it's just, you know, old bloodline. What can I say?
1: Yeah, (laughs) very old bloodline. (laughs) Yeah, which is just
0: such a huge callback, obviously, to this lineage and legacy. But the reason that Lydia's children are on the city ship is because she became pregnant during a rite kind of not unlike the spring rite that we saw in Akatar. Yep. Lydia finds out that she's pregnant. She wants to keep these children far away from the Asteri and Pollux and all of these evildoers that she's kind of surrounded by. So she flees to the Ocean Queen, makes a deal with her that she can give birth on the ship and that the Ocean Queen will keep her children safe. But in return, Lydia needs to turn and be a double agent and work for Ophian. And so we find out essentially that Lydia's true boss is the ocean queen. That's who she answers to 100% because her primary goal in everything she does is for the betterment and protection of her children. Mm -hmm. And I think really this is the moment where Reese realizes how much more there is to Lydia. And I think Reese always really questioned Lydia's motives. Like, sure, she's a double agent, but what's stopping her from just going back to the bad guy's side? Yeah. And I think that seeing this depth to her person and this backstory and her true motivation, which is to keep her children safe, I think he realized, like, no, I really can't trust that this is the right side that she's on. And I thought it was really great, though, because Lydia has a really fantastic line that's like, oh, so now that I'm a mother, suddenly I'm, like, worthy (laughs) and I mean Lydia really gives it to Rune and I love it I mean Lydia is far and away one of my absolute favorite characters in this series and I think this book really allowed Lydia to shine as a main character and not just as a supporting character because we get her perspective in this book we are inside her in many of these chapters and I thought that that was just such a treat to be able to see like her inner machinations and why she's doing the things she's doing and the interplay. And yeah, I don't know. I just love Lydia.
1: (laughs) I mean, there are a lot of people that would say that Lydia carried this
0: book. Oh yeah. (laughs) She's fantastic. So the ocean queen is kind of, she works for the resistance as we said, but she kind of is still trying to make sure that she's protecting herself and her people first and foremost. And so with all of these rebels on the boat, these people wanted by the Asteri, Therian, who's causing all sorts of trouble, she's essentially saying like, I'll take you guys to where you want to go, but that's as far as I'm going. And Tharian, in particular, she says like, you're under house arrest here. You're not leaving this boat. Except he does leave the boat. Right. Of course, because it's Therian. But like, I mean, she's basically just like, look, you guys are off on your own thing. Good luck to you. But couldn't be me because, you know, she wants to protect her people. Mm -hmm. So she agrees to take the gang to Avalon, the land of Cormac. And the reason that they want to go there is because Bryce wants to scour the archives there for more information about the origins of the Fae and the weapons and everything like that. So they're getting off the depth charger, heading into Avalon. And at the very last second therian jumps off of the boat and comes with them and of course now he has made the river queen upset the viper queen upset and the ocean queen upset he's burning a lot of queens Yep. but it's Tharian. you know he can do what he wants he and gets away with everything he he swears allegiance
1: to bryce the starborn queen so he's yeah. like I can get away with this.
0: (laughs) Oh, my God, Therian. So they're greeted in a Valon by Cormac's dad and his like creepy henchmen. And this whole scene is a freaking mess because they come into the throne room. He starts speaking and Bryce immediately responds. And he's like, women must be silent in my throne room. Okay. well, why are you talking to her then? Yep. and then rune tries to respond and he's like you're not allowed to speak in my throne room because you're a traitor and then hunt tries to speak and he's like shut up you don't get to speak <laughs> so who can speak bro yeah it was just this like ridiculous exercise in misogyny and also just being like so determined to be such a jerk like good god bro but the best
1: feminist quotes of the book come from this section
0: yes because i think sarah really leaned into this and really poured a lot of probably (laughs) her own experiences and herself in this and you could really feel it because it does feel personal so we do get confirmation that Cormac is for sure dead and suddenly out of nowhere they bring tristan flynn's sister out safia now we previously meet Sathia in Rune's bonus chapter from House of Sky and Breath. In this bonus chapter, Sathia shows up at the Fae's frat house and all of the guys just like <phone rings> on her. Like she's so superficial, she's so awful. We hate her so much. She's the absolute worst. And it's not a good look for the Fae bros because I think Sathya is very much a product of what the expectations of her are in this life of being a highborn fae. I mean, yeah. she is a highborn lady and she doesn't get to have individual power or individual money or individual property. Like, Sathya doesn't have the privilege to be anything but the role that she has been cast in. And yeah. so for these men to be just dunking on her so aggressively when all she's trying to do is set herself up for the best success that she can in this small role that she's given in life. I mean, Team Sathia, I guess, is what I'm trying to say. I don't know. <laughs> and the reason that she's being drug out into this throne room is because her family, along with many of the other noble families of Faye in Crescent City, have fled to a because of the conflict and because of all of the uncertainty. So they have gone there for refuge and Mm -hmm. Cormac's dad, Morvan, is very upset that there's all these unmarried women around just, I don't know, existing, breathing. So he's trying to force them all to marry and he's angry that Sathia refuses to marry one of his creepy henchmen. And I don't have a great picture of how this happened, but we go from Sathia refusing to marry a creepy henchman to Therian being like, well, I'll marry her. And her just going you sure about that and he's like i guess like what <laughs> again it's therian so you know but it just came out of nowhere Yep. but it adds a fun dynamic that i think we will see play out in the next book and i'm excited to see it yes
1: so the main reason that they're going to Avalon is because they want to visit the Cave of Princes, mm-hmm. which is where Rune found the Star Sword. And Bryce's expectation is that the Cave of Princes is going to be a lot like where she found Celine's power. Right. And I think the hope is that Helena's power is there, mm-hmm. because she already has Thea's power, and she's gotten the third that she gave to Celine, so she's looking for the last third that was given to Helena mm-hmm. and she does have a really funny quote um when she asked to visit the Cave of Princes. She says, "I know my female presence will probably cause the caves to collapse from sheer outrage, but yes." <laughs>
0: <laughs> yes, because, of course, women are not allowed to access the archives or the Cave of Princes because it's a Valon.
1: Because it's a Valon, but also because Peleus set it up that way mm-hmm. so that no female descendant of Thea's would be able to access this power that would rival the Asteri's power. Mm hmm. So Bryce and friends (laughs) end up going to the Cave of Princes. There's Team Caves and there's Team Archives, which is (laughs) quite funny. Team Archives doesn't get very much done. No. Because it's Rune and Lydia and they keep showing up in each other's minds.
0: (laughs) um... Just building that tension.
1: But then they realize that something's wrong. So they also go to the cave of princes and they find a like a, a summoning circle essentially. Mhm. That can summon the princes of hell because surprise, these caves are made out of black salt. <laughs> So she lays down in the circle or whatever she has to do and summons Adas and Napoleon. And they say, hey, we're ready. Just open the northern rift. Mm -hmm. But then the autumn king and the king of Avalon, Cormac's dad, show up. And they're like, you shouldn't be here.
0: We're taking you to the Asteri. (laughs) But then,
1: Rune kills his dad. Yeah, Rune has had enough. Yeah, I mean, all of those years of abuse, mm-hmm. and he just—he's like, "I'm done."
0: Yeah, it's—it's it's a really huge moment when you're reading it, and you just see like Rune be able to like seize his power back from his father. Yeah, but also immediately after, Bryce also takes out Cormac's dad. Yes, she has a great line. She says, I am queen, I am judge, jury, and I'm your motherfucking executor. And then <laughs> takes him out. And it's an <laughs> iconic, iconic moment. Yep. And she stabs him with Truth Teller and it's just, it's the end of these yeah. fae kings. And now Bryce truly is the starborn queen of all of the and fae. Yes. But then like the castle collapses.
1: Yeah. <laughs> They're left with a mess.
0: <laughs> Avalon really goes through a lot of changes throughout this book from the moment yes. we need it until the very end. It feels very much that Avalon is tapped into the starborn power in a way that nowhere else is. And it is physically affected by all yes. of these tremendous power changes and movements.
1: But this also is a callback to what they learn from Celine is that the land itself in these island fae kingdoms is mm-hmm. dramatically connected to its rightful ruler. Mm-hmm. So when Bryce becomes its rightful ruler, the land responds to her mm-hmm. and begins
0: to be fruitful again. Right. Because when Celine goes back to the Dust Court, alone the island like kind of dies yes and so this is like a full circle moment a little bit
1: yeah and they had noticed that the same thing was happening with avalon that it used to be multiple islands and that it had just died to the point that it was just the one island surrounded by mist
0: Mm mm-hmm I hope that we get more about Avalon in the future book because I think that this is a really cool setup and also a place where you could have a lot more convergence between Akatar and Crescent City if if you wanted. Hate a cliffhanger? We've got you covered. Check out part two of our Masshole's Crescent City House of Flame and Shadow episode for even more SJM fun. See you soon. Today's episode of Massholes is produced and hosted by Caroline Barbie and co-hosted by Aisling Kopp. Music by Hartle Road. Massholes is part of the Friendly City Books podcasting network. Hey there, it's Caroline. Thanks for listening. Support Friendly City Books and other independent bookstores like us by shopping online at bookshop.org and libro.fm. Find us on social media at Friendly City Books. And don't forget to like and subscribe so you never miss an episode. Happy reading.